Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So what was fulfilled, what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You go back one, Adrian. Thanks. So on Thursday, I returned from a trip to Northern Ireland. This was an educational trip sponsored by the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship and led by the Telos Group, an organization that leads immersive trips into areas experiencing or recovering from conflict with the goal of learning about peacemaking, reconciliation, and transformation. The original plan for this trip was to go to Israel and Palestine. That plan obviously fell apart this fall as the region exploded into violence and hostility. So we went instead to another part of the world that has experienced the senselessness of violence and is now trying to recover even as some division remains. And even as we focused on the troubles in Northern Ireland, the period of three decades from 1968 to 1998 marked by violence and sectarianism between Catholics and Protestants, nationalists and unionists, other conflicts were a regular part of our conversation during the week. Throughout Northern Ireland were symbols and flags supporting either Israel or Palestine. One of the trip's leaders lives in Jerusalem. Another participant grew up in South Korea and has spent his career looking at the conflict between North and South Korea. And about half of the participants in our group were African-American, engaged in anti-racism work and reconciliation in the United States. It was a good week, but it was a heavy week. 
All over the world, people have suffered at the hands of other people. People clutching at power and wealth, driven by pride and fear. It's too common a story, and has been since the dawn of time. So while the scripture passage we read this morning might seem like a bit of a hard turn after the comforts and coziness of Christmas, it also feels remarkably unsurprising. Our world is all too acquainted with Herod's, all too acquainted with senseless violence and grief. The violence in today's story is a direct result of Herod's paranoia. History tells us that Herod was a deeply violent and fearful ruler. It didn't take much for Herod to suspect that there was a plot against him. In fact, he killed his own wife and sons because he feared they would rise up to try and take his throne. So when the Magi show up at Herod's doorstep and ask where they might find the one who was born king of the Jews, Herod isn't just alarmed, he's terrified. He takes them at their word, believes that the Messiah, the long-promised ruler of Israel, has arrived. But this isn't good news for Herod. This new ruler presents a threat to Herod's throne, a threat to the life he has grown accustomed to living, a threat to his power, possibly even a threat to his life. So when his first plan to find and kill this threat fails, and the Magi return home by a different route, Herod hatches a new plan. Based on the Magi's information, he knows that this child wouldn't be any older than about two, and that he was born in Bethlehem. So he orders his soldiers to march into Bethlehem and kill all the boys two years old and younger. Just weeks ago, we were singing, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Now this city of David is a place of weeping. And so, says Matthew, Jeremiah's prophecy is fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel, you will remember, struggled to have children. She spent years watching her sister Leah give birth to one son after another before she finally bears Jacob a son whom she names Joseph, which means let there be another. Rachel's wish comes true, and while the whole family is traveling from Bethel down to Hebron and they come upon Ephrath, or Bethlehem, Rachel gives birth to a second son. Only there are complications this time, and Rachel dies in childbirth. With her last breath, she names the child Benoni, which means son of my suffering. Jacob, perhaps unable to bear the sorrow of this name, changes his name to Benjamin, son of my right hand. And the family buries Rachel in a makeshift grave along the road to Bethlehem. Hundreds of years later, the prophet Jeremiah watches as the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, are marched along the road from Jerusalem past Bethlehem towards Babylon. 
the weeping prophet cannot bear his grief alone, and so he calls on Mother Rachel to weep with him for the children of her sorrow. And now Rachel weeps again. As Herod's soldiers march through Bethlehem, her cries are joined by every mother's cries. A, tyrant of, a tyrant's paranoia and malice bring about this senseless devastation and loss. This is a tragic story. And it's a story that has some tension in it. At least I find some tension in this story. Because God does not stop the senseless violence in this story. He escapes it. An angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him to flee with Mary and Jesus to Egypt, which is not without its irony. Egypt was a place where many, many years before, a tyrannical king had ordered the death of baby boys. Egypt was a place where God's people had been persecuted now it's a place of refuge for the Son of God. But it also begs the question, God saved the people from the clutch of Pharaoh's hand. Why could he not save them now from Herod's? Why does the Son have to flee instead of the Father simply stain the hand of the tyrant? And I suppose that's the question all of us have a lot of the time. Why does God not intervene? Why doesn't God cause leaders to rise up in Israel and Palestine who are determined and equipped to find a peaceable solution? Why doesn't God afflict Putin somehow, making him unable to lead his country in senseless aggression against Ukraine? Why did God allow Hitler to gain so much power? Why did God not make something go wrong with the passports of the terrorists who boarded the flights on 9-11? People have searched for centuries, millennia, to find answers to these questions, which means there are no easy answers. But part of the answer that I keep going back to is one I heard in a lecture given by Jerry Sitzer, who lost his wife, his four-year-old daughter, and his mother in a car accident when a drunk driver careened into oncoming traffic. As he reflected on loss and grief and faith, a few years after this event at a January series lecture at Kelvin, he said that bad things happen in the world because Ultimately, and perhaps bewilderingly, God is a God of love. God is a God of relationship. And love is not a thing that can be forced. Love is a decision, love is a choice. For us to love God, to truly love God and turn towards God, we must also be able to turn away from him. To choose something that is not of God, something that is not born out of love. And so we are not robots. We aren't marionettes on a string. We have free will. We can make choices, choices that bring us closer to God and choices that lead us on a path of 
destruction and despair. And in a world where Satan still has our ear, it is all too easy to make those choices. The story of the massacre of the innocents has been portrayed by many artists over the years. And one of my favorite paintings is this one, called The Massacre of the Innocents, by the French painter Léon Cognier in 1842. And unlike most depictions of this scene that just show carnage and mayhem, Cognier only alludes to this on the left-hand side. All our attention is focused on the mother, cowering in a corner, desperately trying to calm and quiet her child as she hides. And this mother is looking directly at us, not with a gaze of despair or longing or sadness, but a gaze of terror and accusation. Because Cognier has painted this painting so that we are the soldier. We have just rounded the corner and discovered this mother and her child. And her gaze says to us, how could you do this? How could you be part of this? Her gaze says to us, you are Herod. That's not something we are comfortable with. It isn't something we want to contemplate. We don't like to think of ourselves as capable of doing great harm. And yet the choice to love God or not lies before each one of us. And we might not follow a path that leads to murder or mass destruction, but we make choices all the time that cause pain and sorrow, choices of betrayal and hurt, choices of apathy and silence. The world is full of violence and heartache. And do we do anything about it? Or do our own feelings of helplessness lead us to want to escape all of the news and simply focus on our own lives, our own feelings of safety and security and well-being? There is tension in the story of the flight to Egypt, a tension we have to reckon with. It's a tension not just about God, but about ourselves. In a world full of injustice, full of violence, full of senseless death, full of sorrow, all too often we are the ones who flee, turning away when we might turn towards and try to help. And maybe there isn't much that we could do about Israel and Palestine and the Sudan and Ukraine and Russia. But there is much we can do in our own communities to house the unhoused, to welcome the stranger, to defend the wronged, to support those who feel broken, to put love where there is no love. When we ask, why does God not do something in the midst of the brokenness, we also have to ask, why don't we? The story of the flight into Egypt is a grim story. It's a grim story. But there is, at the end, 
a turn towards hope. Herod the tyrant dies. It is safe to return to Israel. But Joseph doesn't take his family back to Judea, to the land of Bethlehem and Jerusalem, for fear that Herod's son might be as bad as his father. Rather, this little family travels to Galilee, to the town of Nazareth, an inconsequential village full of farmers and a province of foreigners and outsiders. And it is here where Jesus will grow up and begin his ministry not as a king in a palace, not with outward displays of power that would topple tyrannical kings, but as the son of a carpenter who gathers around him a motley crew of fishermen and farmers and who will preach that the kingdom is in fact near because Jesus moves toward people in love. And so Jesus will not ultimately stay away from the danger, but move towards it. In the end, he moves towards Jerusalem, towards the powerful leaders who wanted him dead, and ultimately towards the people who needed him, towards the people he could save, not through power, but by giving his life. Jesus moves towards people, and he calls us to do the same. In 1988, Northern Ireland experienced two weeks of darkness that made any hope of peace seem impossible. On March 6, three unarmed IRA members were killed by British special forces in Gibraltar. Ten days later, a loyalist gunman named Michael Stone launched an attack on those gathered for the funerals of those three members, himself then killing three people and wounding 50 more. Three days later, at the funeral of one of those killed by Stone, two British soldiers mistakenly drove into the path of the funeral procession and the grief-stricken mob surrounded the car, hauled the soldiers out, and began to beat them. And into the midst of this violence ran a man named Father Alec Reed. Reed was a Catholic priest at Clonard Monastery in Belfast and was devoted to nonviolence and peace. When the two soldiers were thrown to the ground, Father Alec lay down on top of them, covering them with his body. When he was pulled off and thrown aside and the men were taken away again by the mob, Reed ran to get his car so he could follow them. But as he neared his vehicle, he heard shots ring out. Running back, he found the soldiers on the ground. The crowd had disappeared. He desperately tried to revive them, giving them mouth to mouth, but to no avail. And as he took out his rosary to perform the last rites, a photographer took one of the most famous images of the troubles. Father Reed, looking directly at us, not with a look of accusation, but a look of deep, deep compassion. Father Reed went towards the conflict went towards the other, went into the darkness in love. He couldn't save those two soldiers that day, but Reed was at that funeral to collect a secret paper from the IRA 
to pass along to their unionist counterparts in the work of facilitating peace talks between the two groups. Peace talks held at Clonard Monastery. It would be 10 more years before formal peace was realized, but Father Reed's work was instrumental in germinating that peace. Father Reed modeled what peace looks like, what compassion looks like, what love looks like in the midst of senseless violence and despair. Karen Campbell is a, a pastor from Northern Ireland, and she was a young teenager in 1988. And in a reflection she wrote last month, she notes the despair that she felt in those weeks and months. But just this past Advent, she watched a documentary about Father Reed called 14 Days. And she wrote, as I watched the documentary about the peacemaking efforts of Father Alec Reed, it helped bring healing in my own mind that even in these traumatic scenes from childhood, God was there and God was in them. We are called to go towards the other, to go towards those places of pain and sadness and hurt and confusion and bear witness in those places to the God who went into those places to redeem them who gave himself over to death in order that death might never be the end of the story. What is God calling you to move towards? Is there a conflict within your family that needs to be reconciled? Is there a student in your class you are being called to befriend? Is there a not-for-profit you're being called to support? Is there a truth you are being called to share? Is there a conflict in the church that calls not for a line in the sand, but for us to move towards each other as we seek to understand each other? Is there a part of the world you are being called to pray for over and over and over and over again? We pray trusting that God yet moves and acts and does wonders in the world, in Northern Ireland, in the Sudan, in Ukraine, in Kitchener-Waterloo, in Community CRC. We pray trusting that God uses us as we move towards him and each other in love. We pray because prayer is itself a way of moving towards conflict and darkness with hope. One year after those 14 days in Northern Ireland, people gathered en masse to pray in another part of the world experiencing division, Germany. People had been gathering in Nikolai Church in the East German city of Leipzig, gathering every Monday night for seven years for peace prayers. And on October 9, 1989, they gathered by the thousands. The army was ready for them outside, braced for armed protest. And after praying together in churches across the city, the people did take to the streets, but armed not with stones, like in previous demonstrations, but with candles, a symbol of nonviolence, because to hold a candle to keep it from going out requires two hands 
no hands to throw stones. One city official later said, we were ready for anything except candles and prayers. With no one to attack, the tanks withdrew. Some historians point to this prayer rally as the tipping point that led to the fall of communism in East Germany. The prayer rallies grew to 300,000 people, and one month to the day later, on November 9, 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. Prayer is a way of moving towards the darkness with hope and peace. The German theologian Karl Barth once said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. So as we close, hear these words of prayer, these words of blessing, written by Ken Sehested, a blessing he wrote for the beginning of a new year. May your home always be too small to hold all of your friends. May your heart remain ever supple, fearless in the face of threat, jubilant in the grip of grace. May your hands remain open, caressing, never clenched, save to pound the doors of all who barter justice to the highest bidder. May your heroes be earthy, dusty-shoed and rumpled, hallowed but unhaloed, guiding you through seasons of tremor and travail, apprenticed to the godly art of giggling amid haggard news and portentous circumstance. May your hankering be in rhythm with heavens, whose covenant vows a dusty intersection with our own when creation's hope and history rhyme. May hosannas lilt from your lungs. God is not done. God is not yet done. All flesh, I am told, will behold, will surely behold. Amen.